0: Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House correspondent Jonathan Carl
1: and I'm ABC New's political Director Rick Klein. Rick, a
0: lot of news let's dispense with the big story first and then we'll get to uh, to everything else that's happening in the world Kanye West 2020. Uh, I, I know you've got a lot of thoughts on this. I don't think we're gonna have time to break them down in this podcast but I did want to do one flashback to just give our listeners a sense of what a Kanye candidacy might look at. We all remember that day when he came and met with uh, Donald Trump. I found myself in the Oval Office, got a hug from Kanye, which was strange. But I also asked um, Mr. West uh, about his views on Donald Trump. Given that he had accused uh, George W. Bush of being a racist, I said, you know, essentially, well, what about this guy? And here was the rather memorable response. The liberal will try to control a black person through the concept of racism because they know that we are very proud emotional people. So when I said I like Trump to like someone that's liberal, they'll say, oh, but he's racist. You think racism can control me? Oh, that don't stop me, that's an invisible wall. Mr. West, what would you, like? well, you don't think you, you, you reject oh, those question. who say he's you, racist. You have one question, we can go to another question. Okay. I what? answered your question. I don't answer questions in simple sound, sound bites. You you are tasting a fine wine It has multiple notes to it. You better play 4-D chess with me like it's Minority Report, because it ain't that simple. It's complex. So this will not be simple, this will be complex, but I never did quite I've I've been trying ever since to figure out what exactly 4D chess is. So if any of our listeners out there can help me figure that. I I understand the concept of three-dimensional chess, I think, but four? Anyway, like I said, we we will have time over the course of the campaign uh, to break down Kanye, uh, but we have other matters at hand.
1: Well, 4D chess is um, actually... It gets around a little bit, like that's that's Trump's game. He's so good that he doesn't need just three dimensions. He's got to go to the fourth. He plays in the fourth dimension. That was, of course, the first ever Oval Office interview of the future president of the United States. We should just, you know, mention that that uh, you had that you had that exclusive. But no, I mean, look, I I I feel pretty confident saying Kanye is not even really running for president much less going you know, to win the presidency although president trump is kind of coaxing him toward 2024 instead of 2020. uh but it's been a it's been a, whew, a monumental news week uh in in other in other ways uh, as well um and we've had this you know amazing confluence of forces uh that have defined this summer and defined the political predicament of this president um who's now four months away from the campaign that has been utterly rocked by uh, all of these events. And John, uh, in the back half of the program, um, I'm going to bring you an interview uh, that I did with the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. I was picking up on the idea that uh, the president uh, has been pretty ready to weigh in on on violence in cities like Chicago. Here's just a snippet of that. I saw the president, um, I believe just today, saying that uh, if he hears from cities like Chicago, he's happy to send in help. Is there any kind of support that you think at this stage would be welcome from federal authorities? Welcome from this administration?
2: Yeah, I mean, I just think that that's so patently insincere. You know, our, our list of needs is obvious. And, and in almost four years of being president, we've gotten zero productive help from the, the executive branch.
1: It was an interesting interview. She's a thoughtful person. She served on the police board in Chicago before becoming mayor. So those those calls for defund the police take on a new nuance. Um, and, and a lot, to, to her mind and to others, all of these things are connected between uh, COVID. Uh, the, the, the economic collapse, the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, and this, this spate of gun violence that we've seen recently.
0: And, and Rick, we have the, obviously the, the political context here. We're getting closer to the conventions. I, I just wanted to ask your take on something that caught my eye. Uh, we, we, we've talked about the, the battle for the Senate, uh, the general, the conventional wisdom has been it's an uphill battle. Uh, for Democrats to get the three or four seats that would they would need to uh, take control of the Senate, you know, depending, of course, on who wins uh, uh, the White House. And you know, the focus has been on Colorado, it's been on Arizona, it's been on Maine. But did you see these the, the, the fundraising figures uh, coming out of the state of South Carolina? Uh, the, uh, the 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 challenger for Lindsey Graham, I, I don't know, has not really been high on the list I've seen of competitive or or thought to be competitive Senate races. Uh, but Jamie Harrison, the Democratic candidate, uh, raised how much, Rick?
1: Thirteen point nine million dollars in one quarter. Um, and it, it, you, you pair this with the that's a the, lot. First of all, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. In fact, uh, I would say it's it's. Probably more than half of the presidential candidates that uh, that that flamed out on the Democratic side uh, ever raised. I'll have to check that. Uh, you know, I'm not good at math. You know that. But yeah, um, and and it's and, it, and the money's flowed to him. It's also flowed to uh, uh, challengers in North Carolina, nearby North Carolina. Um, it's it, we've seen Amy McGrath's incredible numbers against Mitch McConnell. She had a 17 million dollar fundraising quarter. It's even and flowed Montana. out west. To, Montana, yeah, Steve Bullock. Steve Bullock, who's one of those guys who didn't raise much money as a presidential candidate, seven, uh, $7.7 million, which is more than he raised during his entire presidential campaign. So to me, this says two things that are important, John. One is the national mood against the Republican incumbents has, uh, has piggybacked on the anti-Trump sentiments. And, the, and there is an almost unlimited amount of money that can flow now, to Senate candidates uh, with the possibility of Democrats taking on the Senate, uh, taking over the Senate, there's uh, the, the spigots have opened. And I think money will not be an issue for any of the men and women uh, who are Democratic challengers in 2020. They will have access to the money. But that, that's national money though, for the most part. So the second point is that this begins to, to kind of freak out Republicans because it's one thing to, to, to look at the landscape and say, wow, Donald Trump is not looking good right now. It's another thing to say, Wow, we could also lose in addition to places like Colorado, uh, and and maybe even Iowa, Maine. Uh, if we have to worry about South Carolina, if we have to worry about Montana, that is a bloodbath. And and it has a lot of Democrat, a lot of Republicans at this moment very, very worried.
0: So let me ask you a question that you probably that well you can't answer, but but let me ask you to, to, to try to help us understand the most important factor here in these numbers. Um, is this are these big dollar donors Are these, you know, Hollywood liberals writing checks because, uh, you know, with, 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 with newfound uh, energy, or is this grassroots uh, small dollar money? We don't Where have the
2: breakdown yet.
1: It, 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 we all uh, we have I is mean. the top line figures. Uh, but, but and I think it's I think it's going to show a lot of out of state money. I'd be shocked if you can't raise that kind of money in uh, among Democrats in South Carolina or among Democrats in Montana. That just that the money doesn't exist. Is it, is it out of state? it will be out of state, it out of be state big dollars or out of state. That'll be, the, yeah, that's a great question. That's, that's what, that's what we'll have to wait for the filings to see. And there's a difference between big dollars and the, the donors here, but keep in mind, this was a quarter that didn't really involve traditional big dollar fundraisers. You couldn't in the second quarter of this year have a, you know, cocktail party in Martha's vineyard with a Senate candidate. Uh, you had to do it online. And so maybe, Maybe it's big dollars via Zoom, but I'm thinking that there's there's grassroots money here, and that Act Blue has continued to show what it can do to to power these things. And you have to look at the facts right now and say not only is the presidential race tilting toward uh, Joe Biden, but that uh, the prospects in the Senate for Democrats has probably never looked better.
0: So, so you mentioned uh, several states, like I said, that are not really been on on our radar. So let me let me just quickly tick through this uh, and and get your sense of where you think we could actually see uh, a a Democrats pick up. So so like I said, the the races that we've really been focusing on Susan Collins in Maine, Cory Gardner in Colorado, Martha McSally in in Arizona. Uh, There's some other states you mentioned though, Joni Ernst, um, Iowa, the, uh, uh, the the Senate race in North Carolina, Montana, South Carolina, Kentucky. Uh, could, and two races in there, Georgia. Are all of those really in play? I mean, is Georgia, South Carolina, Kentucky, are they, are they in play?
1: And if you really want to go crazy, John Cornyn, then Texas, you know, who's probably very glad that Beto's not running at this, at this moment, uh, because the opposition has been a little bit splintered. I, you know, in play is relative. I, I think some of these, I don't think Mitch McConnell's losing in Kentucky. Um, play the bite back for me when I'm wrong in six months, but uh, I think that's more about drawing Mitch McConnell's attention away. Uh, and, and, and obviously, the, the ability to raise against Mitch McConnell is unlimited, and, and that's why Amy McGrath has benefited and, and won that primary. Uh, so I, in play, in the sense that Demor- the Republicans are going to have to defend them and worry a lot about them, yeah, very much. I think they're going to have to p- spend at least some degree of focus uh, on, on Iowa, on Georgia, um, definitely North Carolina. They always knew they were going to uh and and that's not in montana i mean the idea that they'll have to spend to defend montana is not uh is not ideal now they still have a very favorable map we know that the 2020 uh, republicans uh are part of that class of 2014 that um that benefited from uh you know the, the, the second midterms of the obama years so uh they you know, it's a more Republican heavy class, but um, the battle is on and Donald Trump is not doing them any favors at this moment in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, in the midst of the economic collapse, in the midst, midst of, a, of a national uh, reckoning around race.
0: Well, you, you mentioned that the big dollar amounts for the Democrats, obviously Republicans can raise a lot of money. They, they've got a chance to win that that seat down in Alabama. I'm sure there's been just loads and loads of money flowing into that race. Can you give me an update on how much money Uh, The uh, the the leading contender uh, for the uh, for the Republican nomination for that Alabama uh, Senate seat is raised.
1: Well, who's your leading contender? Well, I mean, it could be Sessions. It could be, but I'm 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 thinking of
0: the guy that was endorsed by the President of the United States.
1: Oh, Tommy Tuberville, yeah, yeah so, yeah. so,
0: so, so, tell me, how much has Mr. Tuberville raised? Because I assume, given that, what did you say, seventeen million for McGrath, a Democratic candidate in Kentucky, uh, you know, nearly fourteen million for a, for a Democratic candidate in South Carolina. How many millions uh, did uh, did Tuberville uh, raise so far?
1: Uh, wow. So that's that's an interesting question. So the, the, the 30 million, the 40 million. Tell me <laughs> out. I mean, so help, the, help the, me with the number. We should notice that the, the reporting is a little bit different because it, it actually covers a slightly different figure because this is a, technically a primary runoff right now. <laughs> right. But, uh, Tommy Tuberville raised six hundred fifty thousand dollars between. Uh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. April say and, say I'll, that I'll again. Get, six six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. He raised Jeff Sessions, four hundred and forty thousand dollars. Now, again, it, okay. Okay. It's, it, okay. it's the okay. primary, you know, so but, so. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So, so wait a minute. So, combined, those two candidates raised roughly one seventeenth what uh, what McGrath has raised in, uh, in in Kentucky. Is that what you're saying? Sounds
1: like fuzzy math to me, John. But if you say so, I guess that's I guess that's about right. Uh, I'm, and, I'm just doing um, this in
0: my head here. I'm okay, just, no, uh, no.
1: I guess I, I guess no, but, you're, you're but, in the ball you're in the ballpark. I, they, you know, that, I don't think I, I still wouldn't put my money on either of them to to lose against Doug Jones. Uh, I don't know who's going to win the primary next week. I know who Donald Trump wants. I have a pretty good inkling of that. But um but yeah that's the, the national money has not has not really flowed in that direction let's I think that's fair to say uh, and that that will be an interesting that will be an interesting race and one that Democrats you know they, I want to say they've written it off Doug Jones they like Doug Jones they'd love to see Doug Jones to win, but Alabama is going to be a real stretch.
0: okay, but I, I mean you know you're the political director I just I just follow yeah, this no, no, stuff sure, but sure, sure, uh, sure. but I it just strikes me as kind of interesting uh, and again I, I think in, in the coming, you know, as we look to see where this money is coming from in all these races, it will be very interesting to see how much of it is a true. You know, not. not I don't care as much about the in-state, out-of-state, but how much of this is a grassroots, yes, yes, uh, small-dollar indication of, of 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 energy, and how much of it is just big bundlers. I suspect there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of small-dollar money here, and it yeah. sure as hell doesn't look like there's a lot of small-dollar um, money as much uh, headed in in the Republican direction. So anyway, look. Um, the, the other the other major thing that caught my ear here so far this week was the president seeming to actually go negative on Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, you know this is as as the infection rates uh, COVID nineteen is is certainly seems to be spiking throughout the country. Uh, you know most states um, seeing large increases in infections. Several states also seeing major increases in the next order of concern, which is hospitalizations, the death rate is still low. The president likes to tell us that, but we also know the death rate is a lagging indicator. Um, but uh, I mean, did you did you hear what he said uh, about Fauci uh, in his interview with Greta Van Susteren? Well, I think we are in a good place. I disagree with him. You know, Dr. Fauci said don't wear masks, and now he says wear them. And, uh, and he said numerous things: don't uh, close off China, don't ban China. And I did it anyway. I sort of. Uh, didn't listen to my experts, and I banned China. We would have been in much worse shape. We would have been in—you uh, wouldn't believe—the number of deaths. More we would have had if we didn't do the ban. And then we banned Europe also when Italy and the various countries were in such trouble. So, we've done a good job. I think we're actually—we uh, are going to be in two, three, four weeks. By the time we next speak, I think we're going to be in very good shape.
1: We should—we should identify John the tell at the end of that—the end of that quote. What the president loves to talk about, you know, two weeks from now, right? What does two, three, four weeks mean to you?
0: I mean, can we talk in terms of the disease? Where we are in two or three or four weeks? I mean, do you you hear what the point that Fauci and others have been making Mm -hmm. is you get the infections within two weeks, you start having uh, people getting very sick, you have hospitalizations going up. And then uh, after that, you have a death rate climbing. So I think that I don't know about the tell you're talking about here, but I would be very worried uh, that soundbite could uh, could come back to haunt him in two, three,
1: or four weeks. I also struck by him saying, "I didn't listen to my experts," <laughs> talking about the, the the China ban. But that that a quote that can that can live on. I, the, the timeline there actually is important for another big reason because we've got a. We've got a couple conventions? of conventions it's supposed to happen next, next month yeah and we've now for the first time we've seen the president even acknowledge that you know the timing of this may not be ideal they moved out of the state of north carolina because they thought they had more flexibility with florida republican mayor republican governor uh and and the, the idea that they may have to downgrade that i mean realities are starting to collide now we're going to see the president back on the campaign trail uh, this weekend in new hampshire uh, they're they're now they're asking people to wear masks, a strong encouragement to wear masks. We'll see what that looks Which like is in terms of social distancing. Very different. Yes, that is a change, but it's not it's not also a requirement. And it's still their decision to do the event. Uh, but you're right, John. I mean, the, the Fauci and the public health experts who have been looking at this you know, say the president continues to be extremely misleading in his talk about the mortality rate. Um, he's, he's wrong on the facts as well as the implications around it. Uh, and the idea that the, the big portions of the United States uh, are, are going to be on the other side of this in two, three, or even four weeks. It does not seem likely right now.
0: There was also an interesting moment in the, uh, the, the meeting he had at the White House uh, on Tuesday uh, about reopening schools. And when it came time for Secretary Azar, Health and Human Services Secretary, uh, to speak, the president asked him about the work uh, that the federal government is supporting to develop not just a vaccine, but therapeutics. Um, which the president was defining also as a cure, um, which is a little bit different. But but you know he, he was asking um, uh, Azar about this, and he said, and and, and you're going to have this, uh, you, you, we're going to have this by by September, right? Which is post convention, but right in the midst, right in the right, midst of right, the presidential right, right. campaign. And wouldn't it be nice to be running on a cure uh, for for COVID-19? So uh, Azar answered him uh, by going through in some detail the various uh, uh, projects that they are supporting in the area of therapeutics uh, in addition to, uh, to, to vaccine, but made absolutely no reference to anything being done by September. And the president... Uh, answered by saying, okay, September, I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, 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 the science, uh, the vaccine, the development of vaccine, the development of therapeutics, the, the virus itself, these things do not really, it turns out, Rick, pay very close attention to the political calendar.
1: I think that's right. They don't pay attention to red states or blue states either. We've seen that in really dramatic fashion these last couple of weeks, and not a lot of patience from the president around around any of that. Uh, and and I've been struck, John, and you, you've been you've been tracking this at the White House this week. Right? How much this president wants to change the subject. I mean, he did the big Mount Rushmore speech and the uh, and, and and the Independence Day speech. That's about uh, monuments and heritage and uh, you know kind of a revival of the American carnage message. And um, his his calculation and he's betting I think his presidency on this at this point is that uh, COVID-19 will um, either be gone or, you know, sort of a non factor to the extent that people live with it and they're voting on other things because if they're voting on COVID-19, if they're voting on the president's handling of this crisis, we've seen in the polling numbers, uh, we've seen what it's meant for Joe Biden's campaign without him even doing very much. That is not Prospect for re election. It just isn't.
0: All right, Rick, uh, we have to take a quick break. We will be back in just a moment with your interview with the mayor of Chicago.
1: Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics, and we're pleased to be joined on the program by the mayor of the great city of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. Uh, Mayor Lightfoot, welcome.
2: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
1: So I, I want to I, I wanna start by just kind of taking a, an assessment of this moment. Um, I, I was thinking back to a few months ago um, when you became something of an internet meme for some of the creative ways to stay home at the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis. It felt like there was a sense of, of good humor, camaraderie even around that. It, it, that feels like a long time ago. And I, <laughs> I, What's your sense of the mood of your city at this moment?
2: Well, I think the, the mood of Chicago is probably not unlike the mood of other places across the country. Um, we were dealing at the outset of the of COVID-19 with a virus that kind of stormed our shores, um, and we got a lot of conflicting, I think, information from uh, certainly the national public health uh, officials. Um, and then people sort of realized the, the depth of the seriousness of it. Um, and And I also would also say that from a government perspective, we had a lot of latitude uh, to really lead and do things that we believe were um, really in the best interest of our residents, um, all towards an an eye of um, really saving lives and keeping people safe. But as the virus wore on and people became more frightened, I think that, that fear kind of metastasized into other... Uh, feelings. I, I talked to a friend of mine who is a, a clinical psychologist probably uh, at the beginning of May and she her organization staffs one of our hotlines in the city and I said, you know, what are you hearing? What are your folks hearing from people that are calling in? And interestingly now with the benefit of hindsight, she said people are really angry. People are scared. They're fearful for what their the future holds they're um, anxious about the loss of physical um liberty they're anxious about the loss of security and knowing what tomorrow is going to uh, be like so it was this bundle of emotions that then you know was ripe for uh, a a kind of civic uprising and then we saw the death of george floyd yeah Uh, And I I just think that it was this confluence of circumstances of COVID, the economy starting to crash around people, the heightened fear, and then this horrific murder of this man who was not resisting arrest. Um, All of these things combined to create this moment that we're in now. And I I can't tell you with any degree of, of certainty where we're headed, Um, I hope that we're going to use this moment and the heightened sensibilities around racism and segregation and inequality to really forge lasting solutions. But this is also on a continuum that we've really seen for probably the last five plus years, where the confidence in small d democratic institutions has just, I think, continually plummeted i absolutely think that that was a factor in the 2016 election and we'll see how this plays out in november of this year but all these things are happening on a continuum and there's been ebbs and flows but we are kind of re um i think reconfiguring the compact between the the government and and the people and i don't think we've arrived at our destination yet
1: you've also been dealing with just awful violence on on the streets of chicago nine children under 18 just in the last couple of weeks uh who died in gunfire and i I know you put more officers in the streets around the fourth of july there was still more violence something like 17 gun fatalities over that holiday holiday weekend Uh, amid all of that we, we saw the calls uh after the george floyd's death uh defund the police is this the time to be talking in those terms what would that mean in your view as someone? who's lived this as mayor, and also someone who headed the police board?
2: Well, when I hear people talk about defund the police, what I hear is our police department takes up a significant amount of our, um, our operating budget, and we're not spending enough money on other things that are equally important uh, to have healthy, safe, and vibrant communities, like, you know, schools, jobs, affordable housing, grocery stores, um, mental health, the kind of uh, things that many of us that live in safe neighborhoods take for granted, but people in areas that feel like they're under siege and that haven't been invested in um, maybe in decades, they're, they're hungry for resources. And I get that. When I ask people who have, you know, happy to support hashtag defund the police. Do you mean that you would like to have no policing in your area, in your neighborhood? To a person, they all say, no, 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 Mayor, that's not what we're talking about. Um, so I, I really do think it's, there's a lot of layers to this, this, this statement, but I think fundamentally what it comes down to is show us equality, show us equity. Give us funding, make sure that our neighborhoods are invested in, and not just by the police. And you know, this is a larger conversation that I'm having, for example, with um, fellow mayors at the U.S. Conference of Mayors, because I'm leading a working group that's working on police reform uh, issues. And you know, it co- fundamentally comes down to what is the proper job description for the police in this modern time. And in order to answer that question, you also have to think about, well, what are the things that people are calling 911 for? What are the calls for service asking for? And unfortunately, what's happened over time as the social safety net has continued to fray and as governments have not invested in the kind of organizations and programs that we know make a difference in the quality of people's lives, the one continuum and the manifestation of government that comes when people call are the police. But they're being called for services that they will never be properly trained to handle. And so I actually think that that is a, a really important conversation for us to have. What is the proper role of the police? And who should be the first responders when these 10 calls for service come in? Should it be the police? We've, we have reflexively said yes by, by, by our, our failure to fund other kinds of first responders and interveners, but the police are not equipped to be the drug counselors, um, the domestic violence interrupters, the mental health counselors. And yet they're called upon to serve over and over again in those roles. And in some ways we're setting them up with an impossible task that people don't want. And, and really they're not they're not equipped to actually address the need that people are asking for so it
1: sounds like it sounds like in part what you're saying is that it, it, it's a mistake to think about this as a time to cut police budgets to cut the number of officers you, it needs to be part of a broader realignment of what police departments do that it's not enough I, to just say I, defund
2: i think it's got to be a broader conversation about what is it that that communities need to be healthy vibrant and safe and the answer isn't always the police should respond to x y or z because they're not properly trained to handle a lot of things that they're getting called upon they are seeing every single day the manifestations of our neglect our failure to fund social services our failure to fund community-based organizations that really have the right training the right relationships with residents to respond to these very hyper-local needs, those should be the first quote unquote first responders in a lot of instances. And the police obviously have a role to play in public safety and a very important role to play, but we forced them to expand their scope and their reach in ways that I think aren't appropriate. And that is an important conversation for communities to have.
1: Do you feel like in this whole, broad bucket of issues that we're talking about how what you and, and so many other uh, leaders have faced with these last couple of months is COVID-19 a factor in the violence that we've seen of late I saw that your police chief uh, suggested that it may be related to violent criminals being released early to prevent the spread do you do, are, do you think of these things as connected Is COVID-19 there, part of this spate of violence
2: there's there's no there's no question in my mind that, that it is um, when you think about the fact that uh, Chicago like other large municipalities we feared what the um sick rate would be the death rate would be among our first responders both police fire emt and also our 911 call takers and dispatchers um, and that fear and that the minute and we were starting to see you know in march on a weekly basis into april a w- daily weekly uptick in the amount of first responders who were testing positive for covid And in that environment where we also had five first responders um, die as a result of COVID infections, that struck a lot of fear in the heart of police, fire, EMT, and 911 dispatchers. So there was a natural kind of retrenchment that happened. We had to rethink what policing meant in the middle of this horrific pandemic for which there there still is no cure. So that absolutely affected it. No question, like in our area, um, the county runs a jail, but the, the, the jails and prisons became these COVID hotspots. So there was a huge effort to decompress. What does decompress mean in that circumstance? That means letting people out and not taking new people in. And it had a ripple effect with our state prison system. Still to this day, our Illinois Department of Corrections has has really put a substantial limit on the amount of prisoners that can be transferred from our county jails to the state prison system. That has an effect, an impact. So yeah, COVID is absolutely a part of what is happening. And I'm not going to say it's a primary driver of the violence, but when you essentially say we are reluctant to lock people up and people who are wreaking havoc in neighborhoods know that, that has an impact.
1: I saw the president, um, I believe, just today saying that uh, if he uh, hears from cities like Chicago, he's happy to send in help. Is there any kind of support that you think at this stage would be welcome from federal authorities? Welcome from this administration?
2: Yeah, I mean, I just think that that's so patently insincere. You know, our, our list of needs is obvious. And and in almost four years of being president, we've gotten zero productive help from the, the executive branch. We, we've gotten help, and, and let, me, let me put a little finer point on that. We've absolutely gotten help from the CDC, but when it comes to helping address some of the immediate needs, particularly around public safety, what we've gotten is a lot of saber rattling. What we've gotten was a lot of finger pointing, blaming us for being a sanctuary city, which we are and damn proud of it. Um, but what we haven't gotten is a constructive partnership from the president and his team that would actually help us problem solve together. That's been fundamentally lacking. And, and I don't need to beg anybody for help. He's the president, he should lead, he should, he should listen. I, I proposed, geez, back in March when they stood up the task force, have a set of bipartisan, geographically diverse mayors that are part of the cadence of people that you're listening to so you can hear from us on the front lines. Proposed to Vice President um, uh, Pence, both in, le- in a letter and a- orally over the phone, got zero traction. What they did instead is hosted propaganda calls that most mayors I know said, this is an utter waste of my time. I don't need to be indoctrinated. I need help. And Mayor if are not gonna help, then they need to get out of the way.
1: Mayor Lightfoot, before we let you go, uh, I, I wanna just ask about the, uh, about the presidential election. You mentioned the consequences in 2016. We're a couple weeks away from uh, a running mate selection from Vice President Biden. And I know, I know that in the past, you've been critical of him specifically over his handling of the Anita Hill episode. Uh, in your view, has Joe Biden done what he needs to do to mend ties to black communities? And how important, if at all, is it that he choose a running mate of color?
2: Well look, I I will say that my comments from what seems like a lifetime ago, I think over a year plus ago, uh, were that Anita Hill would be a factor. Um, I think it's less and less of an issue now because I think she's addressed many of the concerns that a lot of people had. Um, Look, the black vote is critically important in any democratic um, electorate and particularly in a presidential year. Um, And motivating your base, um, particularly in this time um, it's going to be really, really important, and particularly uh, black women. Um, so I think the looking at the, the calculus, looking at the demographics, looking at the people that you need to motivate, all those strongly, I think, favor um, choosing a woman of color. I don't think there's any two ways about it. And, you know, he made the decision, which I applauded, to say that the running mate is going to be female. And I think in this time, in this moment, to really speak to uh, the yearnings, but also uh, uh, very necessary constituencies. First of all, you gotta pick somebody who is ready to serve as president um, from day one. That's gotta be the, the, the number one criteria. But then obviously you've gotta help somebody who's gonna be a helpmate for you to win and then a helpmate for you to govern. And I think there's a lot of really, really good, strong um, candidates that are out there. Um, and I'm just hoping he picks somebody who has demonstrated that they've been tested, that they have the strength of character, the breadth of experience, um, that's ready to help lead this co- this country. I can't imagine that he's not gonna want a partnership with a vice president like he had with Barack Obama. And so that synergy and relationship is gonna be critically important um, because I hope that the vice president, and I hope that Biden wins, of course, but I hope the vice president is somebody who is going to be taking on a visible piece of um, governing. There's, a, there's gonna be, if he wins, there's gonna be a lot of work to do. We have to repair relationships here at home, and we have to repair relationships abroad. And there's a lot of places that the United States has walked away from um, in these past four years that we need to have a meaningful presence. We need to lead um, and assert ourselves um, on a global stage that's gonna take a lot of the energy of both the president and the vice president. And you gotta have somebody who's got the gravitas and the experience to be able to, to occupy those kinds of spaces.
1: Mayor Lori Lightfoot, uh, mayor of the great city of Chicago, really appreciate you taking a couple minutes on in a very busy time. Stay safe, good luck and best to you. Thank you, Madam Thank Mayor. You.
2: Thank you very much.
1: That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics for John Carl, Trevor Hastings, Avery Miller, and our entire Powerhouse Politics team. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time.